It is Friday, the 7th of June, 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and welcome to episode 43 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice, and if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. Right, so as promised, now we're going to start off the Berkshire Hathaway episode. It's a, <laughs> I, I bit off a lot more than I could chew in when I first put out that I was going to be doing this episode. It, it's actually taken me a lot longer than what I was expecting, so we'd have to see how we go today. And, and it could be, and it could be that I ended up doing this episode over multi-parts or breaking it down some way, because it is a lot of information to consume, and it, and it is taking a lot of time. So I guess the first question that I'll answer, and it's for those that may not know who or what Berkshire Hathaway is. So the question is, what is the Berkshire Hathaway Annual General Meeting, or the AGM? So it's known as the Woodstock for Capitalists. So basically once a year, in early May, Berkshire Hathaway, they're an American conglomerate whose largest shareholder is Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett is also the chairman and CEO. Um, Charlie Munger is is his partner and, and vice chair, chairman, although I suspect that he has little to do with the day-to-day operations these days. I think they just wheel him out, and quite literally these days, wheel him out once a year for the meetings. So basically it's Warren Buffett's investment vehicle. They have a long history. I won't go into into detail um, about it, but I would suggest if you, don't, if you want to find out more, read Alice Schroeder's book, The Snowball. Um, there's a link to that on on the website stockmarketmovers.co.nz, which goes into detail about the early origins of the company. So basically, it's an all hands on deck meeting. I, I I don't think I've I've been to other annual general meetings, and I don't think I, I know of any other like it. So simply put, there is like a shopping mall of of stands and shops set up, basically like a, a stadium where you can go buy products from the various companies that Berkshire owns. And but basically, the marquee event is the five hours or so that Warren and Char Warren and Charlie sit on stage and answer questions. So the meeting started off back in the day as basically a, a couple of investors and a hotel lobby but over 40,000 people attend now and I think it's essentially a a herd or a scramble for seats and I believe that they used to be running away where you could basically sit down and and ask Warren as many questions as you like for as long as you liked but obviously if that was the case now (laughs) he'd still be answering questions and six months later so they 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 limit to, to about five hours these days. The great thing about it however is that it is still the sort of environment where they're answering questions as if you were sitting with them in the hotel lobby. So it's it's excellent. On YouTube, they have a video of every single annual meeting since 1994. That's a that's 25 years worth at about five hours each. That's 125 hours or just over five days of continuous watching. I'm proud to say that I've watched them all. And I probably learnt more than I did at the entire time at university, in all honesty. So it is, it is like, if you, if you were to watch them all, it is like going to uni. Now, they obviously repeat a lot of the same stuff every year, and there's nothing wrong with that because it reinforces it. But, you know, every time you watch it, you normally learn something new as well, which is, which is great. And I have to say that they did used to be better. Um, the first thing is that, you know, Warren and Charlie were younger. They, they talked a lot faster, and they were really at the, at the top of their game. You know, if you think in the... In 1994 or whenever, you know, they're in their 60s then and it's, or whatever, you know, a bit younger. And, you know, it, 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 so if you watch the clips from the 90s and early 2000s, it's quite amazing. The format has also changed over the years and they used to just take questions from the audience. So people, only the audience would answer questions and people just got up and asked what they liked. And 
the, the questions in the audience, in my view, tend to be more simple and just, just common sense questions. And they tend to be more open-ended as well. So the so Warren and Charlie can really go on the tangents that they want to. And But it did get a bit silly a bit silly a few years back. I think around 2008, 2009 from memory. I can't remember specifically. But what you had is people were using... It's one of those situations where a small group ruins it for everyone. So you had people using the question time to make speeches or ask politically motivated questions or even just to use the platform to protest. You know, I remember hearing protest people protesting Coca-Cola or whatever whatever the issue might be. They'd buy a couple of B-class shares, head along to the AGM and use it as a platform. So they changed the formats. The formats, and now they have analysts and journalists as well as the, as well as the audience asking questions. So the analysts and journalists is, is Becky Quick from CNBC. She seems to get all the interviews with Warren Buffett. I, I wish I could get an interview with Warren Buffett on the podcast. Um, there's Carol Loomis, who is a former journalist, and she edits Warren Buffett's annual reports. She's been a long time, I guess, in, in Buffett's circle. There's Jonathan Brandt. He's a research analyst. There's Andrew Ross Sorkin from the New York Times, and there's Greg Warren from Morningstar. I, I may have missed an analyst there or two, but so apologies if I have. So basically how it works is each analyst gets to ask a question, they take turns, and then an audience, a member from the audience gets, uh, gets to ask a question, and that's normally decided by ballot. So it's a bit of luck whether if you're in, in the audience you get to ask a question these days, which is what you'd expect if there's 40,000 people there. So as I said, I don't think it's as good as what it used to be. The analyst questions tend to turn into complicated speeches about technical detail that that by the very nature limits the scope of the answer. And the journalists, and it's often technical detail about Berkshire Hathaway, which is often not as interesting as Warren Buffett's general worldviews. And the journalist questions tend to be a bit soft, I think. And you know, Warren used to get up there and used to say, you can ask me whatever you like and the harder the questions, the better. And it's more interesting when you ask hard questions. <laughs> you think about it, he's a guy that must have been asked just about every question in the world, so he's got a good, he's got a lot of practice. And the audience questions, for the most part, in my view, are the best. Um, and these days, again, they're not as good as what they used to be. Um, you know, if you're going into a ballot to see if you can get a question, the chances are you've probably spent a lot of time preparing it. And I think the prepared questions probably aren't as good as the ones that are just made up on the spot or off the cuff and things like that. I mean, obviously, this sometimes you lose something there, but I, I, I tend to think that's not quite as good as what it used to be, but it's still amazing. It seems to, when you're watching, you'll notice that it's like a good cop, bad cop type format. Warren plays the good cop. Basically, you just can't shut him up. Um, whereas Charlie just basically sits here and looks like he is about to fall asleep. 90% of the time, Warren answers the questions first, unless there's a question that's specifically addressed to Charlie first, and then he goes, Charlie, for Charlie to add his his views and things. And more often than not, Warren has covered the topic so extensively that all Charlie can say is nothing to add or no or some other short response, and then move on to the next question. Every so often... However, Charlie gets the wind in the sails and chips in with some brilliance and what he has to say is always worth listening to and it, it tends to be around a lot of the controversial topics that Charlie is often more prepared to pipe up whereas Warren is, is, is I think, I don't know him personally obviously, but by nature quite keen not to upset anyone. And you know, I've I've never actually <laughs> been been there myself. You know, it is a sort of a dream of mine, and I'll hopefully go in May next year. But we'll see how it goes. And I might be running out of time because, you know, in, in its current format, you know, Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger are, are clearly not getting any younger, which is a shame. Um, so what we'll do in, in this episode is I'll basically 
start at the start of the the meeting I'll, I'll and, and go through, obviously I'm not going to play it live on the podcast, but go through and just deal with the topics and the questions as they come up, give give my my view on things and try to interpret what they're saying. So one of the first questions they were asked, and it was no real surprise, I mean a lot of the topical questions in these meetings tend to get asked first, but it was by Carol Loomis and she asked about share buybacks and she asked about Berkshire buying back its stock, which they've started to do in a, in a larger fashion over the last little while and and basically when to do it and when not to. Now Buffett responded that they used to have a policy tied to book value. Buffett said that the only time they should buy back stock is when it is worth more to remaining shareholders the moment after they have done it than the moment before. And he said, and I'm quoting here, we will buy stock when we think it is selling below a conservative estimate of its intrinsic value, which ironically is the same time they buy stock under normal circumstances. He said, you could easily see periods where we buy substan- quite substantial sums if we thought the stock was trading 20 to 25% less than what we thought it was worth. Therefore, un- unless there was something better to do. But they, 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 I don't think they'll do it for the sake of it. And that's an interesting point, actually, because if, if Berkshire was selling to what Warren Buffett conservatively thought was 20 to 25% less than what it's worth, the chances are that there'll be a lot of other stuff selling for a lot less than what it's worth. And it's unlikely that Berkshire would fall dramatically because it's such a diversified company unless the whole market fell at the same time. So... Then it becomes a capital allocation decision for Warren Buffett. Is buying back his own stock better value for shareholders or is buying and making an acquisition or buying some other company uh, a better thing to do? So, and the reason these share buyback questions are coming up is because after that big tax cut that they did a, a year or so back now, it was sort of based on the expectation that companies would spend a whole lot more on capital expenditures, they would improve a lot of things, they'd invest in infrastructure, or they would reward and create jobs, but that didn't really happen as sort of most people expected. That that money was ploughed into dividends and share buybacks, and it's it's exactly the same as what you would do if you owned a company. If suddenly you got a tax break, the chances are you pay yourself a little bit more, you know. So that that's that was what sort of happened, and the argument is that those share buybacks should be taxed in the same way as dividends. I I don't think actually that that personally is a good idea. I I can't see how that sort of sticks. You know, not that's not an argument against whether more tax is good or bad. But if you think about what you're doing when you're buying back stock, you're taking the profits of a company and you're buying out existing shareholders and you're cancelling the shares. So if you imagine what that was like, if it was a small company, if you owned a, I don't know, a pub for example, and you had a business partner, and you wanted to buy that business partner out of the business, and you were doing it with the profits, then I don't feel like that that should be taxed. You know, you shouldn't be taxed for buying out your business partner. Um, and obviously, I, I believe that that's if you wanted to tax, tax that sort of activity, it probably should be done on a capital gains perspective so that your business partner is realises either a, a capital gain or a capital loss based off the, the profit or loss that they made from that investment. So that's the way I think it should be done. I, I don't think buying back shares when you actually think about it is, is common sense, but who knows? So they're asked a lot about share buybacks. Warren said that they would, and I say Warren as if I know him, which I don't, but they said that they would buy, if, if the opportunity arose, they would buy $100 billion in, in stock. 
and they but they'll do so only if the shares were cheap and they'll do only if all the shareholders were disclosed that the stock was cheap. Warren and Charlie, they have this view that they don't want to be taking advantage of their existing shareholders by just buying them out at a cheap price. And when you think about it, that's fair enough. So they see them as partners. So they want them to have the same information that is important and that is also available to Warren and Charlie. So they won't just do it willingly. If they're buying back stock on a big basis like that, they'll be letting people know that they thought the stock was cheap. And obviously, if Warren Buffett were to come out and say Berkshire Hathaway was cheap, it would probably have that corrective factor in the share price anyway. So they might not be able to do buy back that much stock. And like I said, if Berkshire Hathaway is incredibly cheap, the chances are other companies would be cheap as well. And then they went on to comment that they've been involved in companies that have bought back 70 or 80% of their shares over time, which, you know, if a company remains profitable and increases their profits and they're buying back their shares, your earnings per share is going to be a lot higher and the share price, all else being equal, will be a, it will be a lot higher as well. And, um, you know, and like, I, like I said in the introduction, Warren did most of the talking there. Then when it turned to Charlie, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading a quote here, he goes, I think when it gets really obvious, we'll be really good at it. That was his contribution to the to the whole equation, which is quite interesting. Um, they were also asked a really complicated question uh, about the difference between buying back the Class A and Class B stock. So there's a Class A of, of Berkshire Hathaway, which is about $300,000 a share in a Class B stock, which us mere mortals buy for about $200 a share, give or take a little bit there. It was a really long and complicated question asked by an analyst, the sort of question that would never have got asked back in the day. And you could tell that Warren didn't really know how to answer it. So he just talked talked around it, giving examples and talking about trading volume and stuff. He said it would probably be spent more on B than A because of practical reasons. And then Charlie interrupted and said, I don't think we care much which class we buy. And then Warren just said, yeah, and they moved on. So, you know, I, I get, I'll get. i probably talk more about buybacks later on. So somewhere in there he got, he got to sort of talking about the efficiency of the railroads. So Berkshire Hathaway, they own one of the largest railroads in the United States. Um, and he said that after World War II, there are 140 million people living in the United States compared to about 330 million now. That Geez, that seems to have gone up from, to another 30 million pretty awfully quick. I remember when it was a big deal when they tipped over 300 million. Anyway, and he goes, we had over a million and a half people employed in the railroad industry at that time. So that's about 1% of the population. Just, just over. So if there's a million and a half people, 140 million people, about 1%. So significant industry. And so now there is about 200,000 people employed in the railroad and we're carrying a lot more freight than what we were doing in, in, 19, in the 1940s after World War Two. So he said, and after World War, around World War Two time, that was at a, a, a world war. So you'd expect, you know, that sort of railroad activity to be at its peak there as a transport and arms and everything like that. So the point is making that the efficiency and the safety of the railroads has improved dramatically. And I feel like we were, <laughs> I'll talk more about globalisation and its impacts later on because he nearly, nearly always gets asked about this. So he also gets asked about Wells Fargo and I'm sick of hearing an answer to the Wells Fargo question because he gets asked about it all the time. Basically they had a bit to summarise very, very quickly, they had a big fake account scandal with Wells Fargo and a poor incentive system by the sounds of things. I don't know the, the small detail, so I won't dwell on it. But the question's almost like a broken, broken record. And I guess, you know, I'm not living in the United States, so I probably don't have the, I guess, the 
on the ground feeling about it as if the same scandal broke out with, say, Westpac in New Zealand. Um, but it's, I, I guess that's what it's like in, in the United States, so he's always getting asked it. And he answers it in the same way that he always does, that they, he thought that the incent, they got the incentive system wrong. And he, and he goes back to, if you find out what a problem, you've got a problem like that, and, and as a CEO of a company, then you've got to deal with it very quickly and, and, and efficiently. And he said he says that was the problem with Wells Fargo is they found out the incentive system problem and didn't do enough about it. And he always uses the example that they've got 300,000-odd employees at Berkshire Hathaway and that undoubtedly at this moment someone's doing something wrong. He compares it to a city. He says you can't have a city of 300,000 people without someone doing something wrong. So he said the important thing is that when someone does do something wrong, you've got to step in and do something about it. He also gets asked why he isn't stepping in and doing something about it like he did with Solomon Brothers back in the day. And I can answer this question. And related to that, he also gets asked why Berkshire hasn't sold and got rid of its shares in, in Wells Fargo. So Berkshire owns around 10% of Wells. So that number creeps up as Wells Fargo buys back its stock and Berkshire's ownership increases, but he doesn't want to own over 10% because as soon as they own over 10%, they have to become classified as a bank holding company, and they don't really want to do that because there's a whole lot of other restrictions about it. So he is continuously selling wells down to 10% of his, to owning 10% of the company. So Berkshire is about a $500 billion company, give or take at the moment, on in market capitalization. So 10% of Wells Fargo, which is about $20 billion, is approximately 4% of Berkshire Hathaway as well, Wells Fargo. So when you're buying Berkshire Hathaway, about 4% of it is Wells Fargo's. So this is a difference. With Solomon, back in the day, it was a much larger position percentage-wise for Berkshire, and the company really could have gone under. The government could have stepped in and not given them liquidity, and they could have fallen over. So the impact then would have been much larger on Berkshire. And, of course, Buffett was forced to step in. Even if Wells Fargo, a $200 billion bank, were to go out of business, then that's our only, it would be a big deal. But Berkshire would only lose 4%. So, first off, no matter what you read about Wells Fargo, it's clearly not going out of business. I mean, they didn't let the banks go out of business during the financial crisis. They're not going to let it go out of business at this. And that's not even a remote possibility, in my view. So, Berkshire's exposure is is actually quite low. And the stock itself is not expensive. I mean, why would Buffett sell? I mean, forget the fact that he's nearly 90 and there's no chance that he'll step in and interfere with Wells as he did with Solomon. Although I imagine this would be different if it was 50% as opposed to 4% of Berkshire's net worth. It also underlies their commitment to the long term and what they're prepared to, to look through for the you know, the, the news and, and, and the publicity and for the long-term investment side of things. And Wells is cheap. I was, I was looking at, you know, I'm, I'm no bank investor and, and certainly no expert in it, but on a, on a relative basis, I th- Wells' dividend yield is about 1% higher than, than say, uh, JP Morgan, which is a relatively light for, like, company. You know, you can imagine when these troubles pass, which you'd have to imagine they will, there'll be a revaluation of that company upwards, upwards, you know, say 1% is about 25%, 1, 1% dividend yield equates to about 25% of market cap, 20 or 25% of market cap, so suddenly that becomes 5% of, of Berkshire's net worth. So it's not, not, we're not talking small numbers here, and I, I don't, I don't, I can see why as long-term investors and the low cost basis that they have, they don't have any reason to sell. But what do I know? And I'll, I'll quote him here, he goes, I don't have 
any advice for anyone owning a business except that when you realize something bad is going on or something that leads to bad behavior, when you find out and you are in the top job, you got to act fast. Rightfully, Wells should get checked on out in everything they do. All banks should. They get a government guarantee and they receive trillions in deposits. And I'm, I'm missing some stuff here, here just to, for ease of commentary. But, and if they abuse it, then they should pay the price. And then he goes on. I propose that if a bank gets to a point where it needs government assistance, then the responsible CEO should lose his net worth and his spouse's net worth. And they should come after the directors for the last five years. But, and I'm missing some stuff out there, but it's the shareholders that pay. And it, 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 it is the shareholders that pay. They were then asked a, a, a great question, I think. And I think it was from a member of the audience, although I, I could be wrong about that. It might have been one of the journalists. But basically, they were asked about the most interesting investment that they've ever made outside Berkshire Hathaway. These are the sort of questions that I like. You know, that's when you get some real-life examples of what's going on, not ridiculous questions about the whether they'd buy back the A-class or the B-class shares, for example. Buffett gave the example of a company called Atled Corp. And Atled spelled A-T-L-E-D. He said it was Delta st- spelt backwards. Um, so they had 98 shares outstanding. He said he bought one. He made a joke about liquidity. And it shows that really if you are buying value, the liquidity doesn't really matter. Um, so he said 100 guys chipped in $100 each to form a duck hunting club. And he said two guys didn't come up with the money, so they had 98 shares outstanding. So they had some land in Louisiana. I'm not sure if I've pronounced it with the right accent. Um, he said that they found oil under the land. He made the joke that instead of shooting upwards at the sky, someone shot downwards at the ground and oil burst out. Um, he said that that's probably still producing oil now. He bought the stock for $29,200 per share. Not a bad investment from the guy he bought it off. Uh, not a bad return, sorry, but they eventually sold out to a, to a larger oil company that, and they would have made a, a, a massive result from that as well, I'm sure Warren did. Charlie said that when he was young and poor, those were the <laughs> words they used, he paid $1,000 for an oil royalty that paid him out $100,000 a year for a great many years. He then said, but that is, I mean, that's a ridiculous return when you think about it. But he said that that is only once in a lifetime. He didn't have another one like that. He said another time he bought shares in an oil company that went up 30 times in a short period of time. And he said, but he said the real tragedy was that he turned down buying five times as much as what he bought. And I think he's used an example in another conversation where it was just, just for some technical reason. I don't think he could bother, be bothered going through with the transaction. I think he had to transfer money or whatever he had to do. I mean, you know, you think about times like in your life where you couldn't be bothered doing stuff. He obviously didn't know it was going to go up 30 times in a short period of time. He said it was the dumbest decision of his whole life. Imagine that what the value of that would be compounded. And then he goes, so if you, any of you make any dumb decisions, look up here and feel good about yourself. So what he's alluding to there, I think, is that you can make mistakes in, in your life, but you can still achieve a satisfactory result as long as you remain prudent. Buffett gets asked about being a Democrat. Um, you know, A lot of people were surprised to hear that he's a Democrat, I think. And he does get asked about this 
a lot and he generally answers with the same thing so I'll quickly re reiterate it here he said that he doesn't put his political view on the company he said that Berkshire Hathaway has never and will never make a political contribution to a political or presidential candidate he said people should not pursue their own political in interests with your money that is shareholder money he said that his position at Berkshire cannot be used to express his own political beliefs but he said his political beliefs can be expressed as a person and not as a representation of Berkshire. He said he, he tries to minimise this, but he will do it when it is when he feels it's important. So the reason he tries to minimise talking about his political views is because by nature he is associated with Berkshire. So he doesn't want to be even in his, when he's speaking as a citizen, given his political views too much because it, it could be interpreted as the view of Berkshire. And interesting, Charlie, his, his partner is a Republican, so they've got two different opinions there. He said he won't give money, and Charlie has said in the past that Warren isn't your typical Democrat, and he said, and he goes, I'm not, I'm also not your typical Republican. He said, I won't give money, but he'll raise it, and he said he doesn't like the way that money is used in politics. He said, I'm a card-carrying capitalist, those are the words he used. He said that capitalism does involve regulation, and that it does involve taking care of people that are left behind in a country that is rich as the United States. Charlie said that he doesn't like seeing money wasted and that it should be better used by the government. He said also that it should be used more liberally in certain areas, so they should be spending more in certain areas. So he was then asked about 5G. So 5G is in the... I guess the data and the broadband or whatever it is that's been rolled out. He said the he pretty much leaves the the answer to that to the to the Berkshire subsidiaries to deal with. He said that those sorts of decisions are not made from a centralized basis. Charlie said that he knew very little about it, but then he got onto China and said that they would buy more. So I'm not really sure <laughs> what was happening there. Um, and but it's probably worth talking about Berkshire's business model, which is pretty much have a decentralized operation with the operating businesses taking care of their own business and just sending the profits back to Omaha. He said that that approach may have certain weaknesses at times. You know, sometimes it is better to have oversight for things, but he believes that overall it has been a net benefit to let the managers of Berkshire run their businesses. He basically says that that's one of the reasons that they'd like to be acquired by Berkshire so they can keep on running their business. So he goes on, and I'm, I'm quoting here, and I thought it was a good quote. He said, the world is going to change in dramatic ways. Just think about how, think about the way it has changed in the 54 years since we had Berkshire. Some of those changes have hurt us. There have been textiles, there have been shoes, hurt us in the department store business, hurt us in the trading stamp business. And he goes, these were the founding businesses of this operation. But we do adjust, and we have a group overall of very good businesses. We have some that will be destroyed by what happens in the world. But I'm a card-carrying capitalist, and I think that is a good thing. You have to make changes. We had 80% of the people working in farms in 1800, and if there hadn't been changes, and you still need 80% of the people producing the food and cotton, we needed would have a whole different society. We welcome change, and we certainly want to have managers that can anticipate and adapt to it. But sometimes we'll be wrong and those businesses will, will wither and die and we better use the money someplace else. This just shows how honest he is with shareholders. I don't know how many CEOs will, will come out and say that some of their businesses will wither and die or 
how some of their businesses might be destroyed by change. You know, not too many CEOs would admit to that. Moreover, it, it comes back to how good they are at allocating capital because Buffett will merely allocate the capital to businesses where Berkshire is likely to, con- to, to continue to achieve an appropriate return. And that's what they did with the original Berkshire textile mills or the trading stamp business. When those businesses withered and died, they took the cash out of those business and redeployed it elsewhere. They weren't reinvesting the profits of the Berkshire mill back into back into the mills because that would have just been a drain on capital. And that comes back to buying businesses at an appropriate price. And you know, if you think about the newspaper business just as an example, because that, that's a business that, let's face it, it might not exist in, in 20 or 50 years' time, but that doesn't mean that it won't produce profits, and I'm making up numbers here, so don't quote me, say over the next five years. So there'll be obviously be a, a price that you'd pay for those profits. And if you had a business that was ultimately doomed, but it was going to make, and you felt confident it was going to make a million dollars in profit each year over the next five years, before going out of business in the fifth year and you knew this for sure, <clears throat> how much would you pay for it? And it obviously has a value. So how much would you pay for $5 million in that situation? And that's the and by the fifth year. And that's the, obviously the question you need to ask yourself. I mean, you obviously wouldn't pay $5 million, But there, there are quite a few variables you can put in a question like that to come up with uh, an answer. And it, it is quite simple at the end of the day. That, that's what investing is. And would you pay $2.5 million for a business today if you knew it would make $5 million over the next five years? Would you pay $1 million? Would you pay $3 million? Those, those are the questions that you need to ask yourself. And, that, and that's all investing is at the end of the day. So kicking on, Carol then asked a, a question. And I, I do skip out some questions here where the answers just aren't interesting. But she asked a question about the consumer food market and the long-term potential for Kraft Heinz. Again, Carol seems to hit all the real um, popular topics on the head at the moment because this is another one that's been in the news. And again, he repeated what he said many times in this topic that they basically paid too much for Kraft. He said they originally paid an appropriate amount for Heinz but then overpaid for Kraft. He makes the argument that it is still a great business based on the return on capital and the brands and everything like that. And this goes back before to how much, what I was saying about how much you're paying for something. So basically... To use the numbers that are used as an example, they paid, and I'm not doing the math properly here, but they paid $7 million for that $5 million of earnings stream. They just paid too much for it. Now, does that mean that you should sell it now because you're still going to make that $5 million earnings stream? And the answer is maybe. So notice how he keeps his emotions in check and remains rational here. I think many people and investors, including myself at times, will feel bad about a stock that is down a lot. But Buffett just says, well, the company doesn't know that you own it and it'll only produce based on its fundamental capability and he, he thinks they've overpaid for that fundamental capability. And he's, basically you have to be able to def- divorce yourself from the mistake and accept it. Um, and if you if you revalue the company and it's still, and that valuation is significantly below what the current price is, and yeah, maybe you should sell, but if you've revalued that company and the valuation is still fine, then what is that actually the reason you should sell just because the stock is down? It's not it's 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 not quite right. And that's why he's still happy to own it. And he is happy to own it. Um, although I have noticed in the past sometimes 
when he's happy to own it, he's still looking for an opportunity to get out of it. So it's not like you can move a big position like he has overnight. So he still might be happy to get out of it. Um, and he's not going to go out if he's happy to get out of it and say he's happy to get out of it because <laughs> that would be detrimental to the value he could get out of it. Anyway, so he, he did say that you can pay too much for a wonderful business. And that, that is true. Um, the business does not know how much you have paid for it. And those are direct quotes. He then spoke about the changes in the consumer brand space and uses Amazon as a brand and Kirkland, which is a Costco brand, as an example. I think Costco is on their way to New Zealand at some point in the future, which would be quite interesting as well. He talks of the constant battle between the retailer and the brand, and Buffett feels that the pendulum has swung in the favour of the retailer at the moment. He believes that it has gained some power over the brand. And I'll quote him directly here. He said, Kraft Heinz is still doing very well operationally, but we paid too much. If we paid less, it would still be earning the same amount. You can turn any investment into a bad deal by paying too much. And if nothing else, this comment sums up a mistake I see a lot of people making in the stock markets. A lot of investors are willing to pay any price for growth. Say a, a company, you know, I was looking at a company today in Australia, I'm not going to name it, but it had, it had a market market cap of $1.4 billion and it was making, a, I think, a cash flows of negative cash flows or maybe in a million dollars of cash flows. And you just have to apply some simple math to that to those numbers to figure out how much they have to grow to actually meet that valuation. Anyway, so say say for a company that's grown at 20% a year, I mean, many investors just appear to pay whatever valuation for it. And it's always worth thinking about how much you're paying and considering what is a rational price. And the best way to think is, is always as if you're buying the whole company, as if you're buying that whole company for $1.4 billion or whatever it might be, and how much you think that they can return over the, over the period of time that you see fit. And as you can see, <clears throat> Even the best investors, such as Warren Buffett, are, are caught up in mistakes. So Buffett was asked about the competition in the furniture market. And Berkshire is part of the operations, and one of their most famous investments was buying the Nebraska Furniture Mart. I think well, Warren Buffett actually bought that on his birthday, and I think they have a much larger furniture operation now. So he was asked in particular reference to online furniture retailers such as Wayfair. And their basic business model, at least initially, is that they seem more prepared than, say, a typical furniture retailer to stomach losses in order to acquire customers. And I found Buffett's response to this sort of implication and question quite interesting. So Buffett responded that the jury was still out as to whether operations that have grown rapidly in size but are still incurring losses as to how they will do over time. Buffett said that in the present market, partly because of some major successes, most dramatically Amazon. And for those that don't know, Amazon was a company that was a, was particularly willing, due to the nature of their CEO, to forego profits for a long period of time in the anticipation of future profits, if that makes sense. And there's nothing wrong with doing that, but Amazon was unique in how long they were able to do that for and how dramatic the profits are starting to be now. So Amazon, I think I saw the other day, was $35 billion in um, operating cash flow, which so we're starting to get quite significant there. And by all accounts, it seems likely to grow. So investors, you know, because of successes like that, are willing to look at losses for a longer period of time as long as sales increase and, and hope that there are sort of better days ahead in terms of profitability. That's at least in the current market and, and things will change. Um, and my, my prediction is 
personal prediction in a lot of those companies is that some of them succeed and and some of them will fail. And if you can predict which ones succeed and predict which ones will fail, at least to a reasonable degree of accuracy, you can probably make a fair bit of money in that space. So Buffett did say that a significant amount of their furniture sales are in line. And you know, Charlie looks like he's about to fall asleep during this point. He didn't seem particularly excited by the question, and maybe you're not either. Um, he, he said Buffett said that customers with furniture do like to order online and pick up in store. Um, and they said that they learn a lot about customer behaviour as it unfolds. And Buffett then had a sort of, I guess, a sarcastic dig here at some of these companies. Because if you're running a company at a loss, right, and I don't just mean a, a, a loss in the income statement, I mean a loss in the cash flow statement. So if your company's cash flow negative, what happens is that on the balance sheet, then your, the cash that you have in the bank starts to get eaten away. And if it gets eaten away to zero, you have to find more cash. And there's ways to find more cash. Either you can take on debt or you can take on investment. Um, so Buffett's diggy is talking about the Nebraska Furniture Mart. Nebraska Furniture Mart, like I said, one of the most famous investments. He said, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he is, he said that on Tuesday, whatever day of the week, I think that the the meeting happened on the Saturday. He said on Tuesday, so he was obviously referring to earlier in the week at the time, we did nine point three million in profitable line at Nebraska Furniture Mart. I assume profitable line means sales as opposed to um nine point three million in profit. Um and that company had paid in capital of twenty five hundred dollars and nothing has been added since. So he's saying the initial capital to found the company was twenty five hundred dollars. Nothing has ever been added to the company in terms of new capital and that it's delivered a profitable line of $9.3 million just on a Tuesday, and then he goes, it's been working so far. So he's sort of saying there, look, we, we, we might be taking some criticism, but we're actually doing pretty good. And unlike a lot of these companies that, that are requiring a lot of outside and outsourced capital in order to grow, obviously the jury's out as to whether they will succeed. And he goes on to say that a lot of the weakness in the sector is not necessarily caused by the online competition, but he said all four of their furniture furniture businesses had weaker quarters than expected, and he said that that's tied to home building, which was below the levels that he that they were expecting, and this obviously impacts the furniture business just like it impacts Nick Scully in Australia, for example, when there's more homes being built, not more homes being built, more homes being built, more construction going on, there's likely to be more furniture. It's pretty obvious if you build a new lounge, you're more likely to need sofas, as an example. We build a new room, you're more likely to need a bed. And he said that they will see if the models of online businesses running at losses will work in the long term. And obviously the jury's still out. And I guess you can read between the lines that, that Buffett at least has some scepticism on some of them. When Warren turned to Charlie, Charlie's response was he woke up and he said, I think that we'll do better than most furniture retailers. And that was his whole contribution on the subject. So obviously Charlie wasn't a subject that Charlie had too much time for. Speaking of time, we're nearly at 40 minutes for the episode already, and to be honest, I'm only about a quarter of the way through the content of the Berkshire meeting, so I think I'll have to call it time and maybe call this part one of the Berkshire content. So for those that are looking to hear more about Berkshire in the future, you'll be happy because we're going to have to do some more episodes. For those that don't like it, well... What I'll do is maybe resume normal content next week and, and do some segments on Berkshire in the episode. So that sounds like a nice compromise. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I'm sorry it's been a long time coming, but you know, the, uh, 
honestly, instead of listening to me, you'd be better off, go, better off going onto YouTube and spending the time to watch the annual general meetings yourself because it's just a, a gold mine full of material that that's just there to be learnt, really. And I, I know, you know, it's it's not it, it is it is time consuming, um, and you know, even this time saver editors watching is is five hours long but it's some seriously good material so i'd, I'd definitely recommend it but thanks again for listening into the podcast as a reminder that nothing that i said today should be considered financial advice if you're looking to find out more about the podcast go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give us a like by searching on facebook and we've got twitter now i always forget to remind people of that so share that with your friends and follow me on twitter um if you want to email me it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz please feel free feel free sorry to send across some listener questions it's good to get them aired on the podcast once again my name is jeremy medlin and this has been episode 43 of the stock market movers podcast for friday the 7th of june 2019 we'll see you all again next week